0: Listening to It Simply Isn't Done, a podcast of Portage Chapel Hill. I'm Reverend Jess Davenport, and I am typically joined by Reverend Barry Petrucci. Barry is on a renewal leave, and we are excited for him and excited to welcome him back mid October. We are going to have guests join us on the podcast that will reflect on the scripture, on messages, and a little bit about their life and ministry. And we are so happy that you're here. We are in week two of our The Gospel According to Banned Books message series. This week's banned book is Beloved by Toni Morrison. The scripture is the Good Samaritan found in Luke 10. If you've already heard the scripture and the message, Check the show notes for where you can skip to to hear some reflection.
1: Hear this good news according to the Gospel of Luke. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? A Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever you spend." Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Join
0: me in an attitude of prayer. Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our Redeemer. Before I get started, I want you to take a moment and think about what it means to be beloved. What does it mean to you to be beloved? Get a little bit of a working definition in your head as we go through this this morning. We are in week two of the Gospel According to Banned Books. This week, our selection is Toni Morrison's Beloved. I'll get into the plot um, in a moment to give us a synopsis, but I also want to talk a little bit about why we're doing this series. As a people of faith, We're called to grow and learn and be a part of the cultural conversation, right? We're not cloistered. In the world, not of it, meaning we have to be in the world, participating in communal life. And as such, we have the chance to be exposed to many ideas. Some are good, some are not. There's one reason I think, there's many reasons, but one reason I think book banning is so concerning is that it's become hyper-partisan in our political conversation. And veiled in this weird, we want to ban books for the kids kind of way. Um, It's this narrative that's really hard to combat because who's gonna say, oh, I don't care about the kids, keep the books, right? That's kind of how they're setting up this argument. But at the heart of it, I'm not really sure it's for the kids. Because in 2023 America, it's nearly impossible to ban a book, right? You can still get them. You can purchase them. They're in circulation. If they are taken out of a curriculum, they're still available all over the place. So it's not really about keeping kids away from what some deem unsafe material. It's about making a value judgment of what kids should be taught. And it's an anti-public servant stance using governmental means to censor voices in the public sphere. And that should concern us as Christians for a few reasons. One, Jesus, like in our scripture today, taught some of his most impactful lessons through storytelling, through narratives, through parable. Sometimes we forget the Good Samaritan is a parable. Jesus made it up. It is a story that tells a truth, right? A parable is a work of fiction with a lesson in it. And today's parable, frankly, is particularly violent. A lot of them, a lot of Jesus' parables tend to have an element of violence in them. So it's interesting that the dominant religious group in America, Christians, receive teaching through narrative, through story, through story that is not sanitized, and we're taught lessons from arguably the best teacher the world has ever encountered, Jesus, Christ Himself, God incarnate. It seems a little bit hypocritical, just straight from jump, for a lot of Christians to ban books from curriculum for that very reason, right? Especially from Pulitzer Prize winning you know, books and Nobel laureate authors. Which gets me to my other reason I think book bans are concerning for people of faith. There is a specific kind of voice these book bans try to silence, one that shares from the perspective of the marginalized. Toni Morrison's books are frequently banned, taken out of curriculum. We could have done this whole five-week series on books of hers that have been banned in certain places for certain reasons at certain times. And it's not because she's a vulgar author with ideas unfit for us. I'm going to guess it's because she's a black woman writing to and for the black experience in America, with prose, with fiction, but based on real stories. And she tells the truth, and she does not pull punches in her work. Beloved is set in post-Civil War era and follows a family that has escaped slavery The novel deals with the aftermath of the trauma of slavery itself, and then the trauma that is perpetuated from that, from the people who were victims of being chattel slavery. And it's based on a true story of a woman, Margaret Garner, who escaped slavery but was suffering from a lot of trauma and as a group of slave patrollers tracked her family down, she killed her youngest child and attempted to kill all her children to prevent them from having to go back into slavery. Now the book is not, as one reviewer commented, delicate fare, but friends, neither was slavery. We do ourselves no favors by teaching children a sanitized version of history. This book is often banned because of sexual violence. But friends, there's no meaningful way to talk about the effects of slavery and what it was like without mentioning violence, especially sexual violence. It was a key feature of chattel slavery in America. In 2014, there was a large-scale study done using genome data from places like 23andMe and a few other of those sites, um, DNA profiling banks. And the average black American they found has one quarter European DNA. Many, many of those families do not have a white relative dating back before Loving v. Virginia, many of you were alive when Loving v. Virginia went before the court in 1967, interracial marriage was banned before then, and frankly, many folks um, still, still struggle with the concept of interracial marriage. that DNA had to come from somewhere. And given first-hand accounts from enslaved people, we can understand where it was likely from. Now, I share that not so we can make assumptions about the black or biracial folks in our lives, their heritage, their stories. We don't need to do that. But to illustrate the importance of Morrison's work here sharing stories we aren't told. Now, that violence isn't even the main theme of the book. How many of you have read Beloved? I think many of us would say it's family. Mother, daughter, relationships that are complicated, or maybe um, another theme. what does it mean to actually be a man? An overall theme of what does generational trauma look like played out? So at the thought of it being banned, we need to ask ourselves, who stands to gain from this work being kept away from people? children? Who benefits from kids not being able to read this story, these books? Those are questions we have to ask ourselves. Glenn Youngkin is now the governor of Virginia, but when he was running, he piloted the beloved bill. It was a bill based on this particular book that would um, require teachers to remove or provide alternative assignments for students when the material was explicit a term that was not clearly defined within the bill. He ran an ad with a parent upset that her white son would have to read, quote, such filth in school. And here's the thing. White governors from former slave states aren't naming bills after Oedipus Rex by Sophocles, right? They aren't naming bills as I lay dying trying to ban Faulkner's work. They're banning a particular kind of work, and those two books are... Certainly more graphic and explicit than beloved. Something those of us with privilege often confuse is comfort with safety. I wanna say that again. We often confuse comfort and safety. And in doing so, we make others without privilege uncomfortable and unsafe. Tony Morrison's books are uncomfortable. If you have read them, there are parts that are certainly uncomfortable. But we forget how often we grow and learn about ourselves and others when we are faced with discomfort. And folks with the most privilege, frankly, have the lowest tolerance for discomfort. And it takes us more time to grow into that. And friends, we do this in church, Every once in a while, either I or my colleagues will be told that our parishioners just want to come to church and feel good about themselves and go home. And some weeks we do that, friends, because that is part of our story. It's just not the whole of our story. I'm not in the pulpit to make us all feel comfortable. And some weeks I wish I was, right? Because there'd be less resistance. But that's just not how it is. I'm not wearing my pastoral care hat right now. And friends, the gospel is not comfortable. It is not. Jesus did not say, I have come to make everyone comfortable and complacent. That'd be convenient. (laughs) But Jesus instead says, I have come to proclaim release of the captives, recovery of sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And friends, if there are oppressed, there are oppressors. And that is something for us to contend with. Jesus was clear about that. And we need to be too. We cannot sanitize the gospel for our comfort's sake, nor should we literature. And here's the thing, I think particularly with race, Some of us get really wound up thinking, we're not racist because we're good people. Like we don't use slurs. And that's not really the point because it's not really an individual issue. Particularly here, it's not an individual issue. It's a collective issue and a systems issue. We have a system set up that disproportionately negatively impacts people of color. And how will we know about these racist systems if we don't engage in critical works from voices of people of color? How will we know? How will we be part of the solution? Which is what we are called to do by Christ. Our gospel story, friends, today, it is one that is condemning. And it certainly deals with crossing racial and ethnic lines, it deals with violence. So often we sanitize this story and we say, wow, let's be like the good Samaritan. And we should. We should be like the Good Samaritan. We think, isn't it great he helped when no one else would? That's not really the context or the overall point of the story, however. A Jew was robbed, beaten, and left for dead, bleeding on the side of the road. The two people that passed him are supposed to be the holiest of people, the people most in touch with God. A priest. Right? Someone from the priestly line, a Levite, and they left this man. They left one of their own, lest they have to deal with the rituals of cleansing themselves of his blood after helping him live. They didn't want to deal with it. Now, the hearers of this parable would have expected, anticipated, assumed that eventually a Jew was going to be the hero, maybe from a different tribe, or someone lower in status in some way, but they would have assumed it was a Jew given the circumstances, given how touching worked, given how their cultures worked. This story is much more provocative when we realize, and when they realize the hero is a Samaritan. It pushes every single boundary that they have. Samaritans were not just non-Jewish. They were considered traitors enemies. In 1587, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered Judah, most Jews were taken with them, but some were left behind. And those who were left behind intermarried with the people of Samaria. And when many left there, they just lived their lives, and they still practiced as Jews, they intermarried, but generally, they understood themselves to be Jewish And eventually, when the kingdoms reunited, the Jews who were in diaspora, they returned back, and they were horrified that these chosen people intermarried. Horrified, right? That was not what they were supposed to do. So they let the Samaritans help rebuild the temple, and then they kicked them out of any of the former kingdoms, wanting nothing to do with them. The Samaritans built their own temple and kept practicing Judaism, but it was not recognized by those in Jerusalem. They were considered pagans and traitors. There's a word, a term um, in Hebrew akin to half-breed, and that's how they would describe the Samaritans. There was some deep stuff going on there. So when Jesus told this story, the story that he made up, this narrative, this work of fiction. When the hero turned out to be the good Samaritan, jaws would have dropped. There would have been scoffs and crickets. If you want to talk about something that's uncomfortable. This was Jesus' response to who is my neighbor? Our sworn enemy? I mean. Amy Jill Levine writes, this parable insists that enemies can prove to be neighbors, that our compassion should have no boundaries, and that judging people on the basis of their religion or ethnicity will leave us dying in a ditch. Friends, I know I've pushed us a little bit today. I've pushed me in researching and writing and preaching this but part of us understanding our own belovedness, we have to be so confident and secure in it that there are times we know we need to grow and stretch and be uncomfortable and know that we are still loved. Right? Being beloved is a foundational condition into being able to do any of the rest of this work. Friends, there are times I have been ignorant and complacent and desired my comfort over others' safety, And I'm guessing I'm not the only person in this room that could say that. We are not loved less because of it. We are not loved less because of it. But rather leaning into knowing how much we are loved by our creator God. That is the antidote to the false comfort and being afraid of learning about new ideas. I really don't think Jesus pushes us into places of discomfort for fun, but because we are a part of a community where God calls everyone to be able to thrive, where God says everyone deserves to be able to thrive, and we need help getting there. We need to be pushed, shoved, nudged. So friends, this week, I invite us to think about those times We can center ourselves in our belovedness and lean into some discomfort and challenge ourselves with ideas that might help us live out God's kingdom here on earth. Amen. Mm -hmm. This week on the podcast, I am thrilled to welcome Rev. Jarrell Wilson, who is the new executive director over at the Wesley Foundation in Kalamazoo.
2: Thanks Ooh.
0: for having Woohoo!
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to discuss a great book. <laughs> get into the drama.
0: Yes. Yeah. So let's get into it. Let's let's start. So this the weird part about this podcast is that I invite people. Who then have to listen to my own free share. <laughs> it, it feels a little narcissistic, but I, that's just kind of the way it works. And it's helpful to hear other um other perspectives. So I know I, I sent you a little link and forced you to, to listen to it. Um and I'll start usually I'll I start with what I wanted people to get, and then I would love to hear what you actually got. <laughs> Just in case listeners at home are like yeah that's more where I was. Um, So this week we got to use the book uh, Beloved as really a vehicle to talk through um, first of all how Jesus uses narrative and storytelling and how we shouldn't be scared of storytelling, particularly for marginalized voices. Uh, because it's hypocritical as Christians, as that's how we get our primary instruction from Jesus. And um, that oftentimes folks with a lot of privilege, and I serve in a predominantly white, not entirely, but predominantly white congregation, we will often choose our comfort and mistake it for safety. So when our comfort is threatened, we'll we'll think we're unsafe when mm. we're not really. And that comes to play when we're hearing stories and voices Um, from the margins so those were kind of my two main areas of focus this week
2: yeah and see I would have gone in a completely different direction
0: if you were preaching or what you heard
2: (laughs) oh well what I heard yeah that's what I heard yeah that we need to listen more to marginalized voices the importance of narrative and storytelling the spiritual aspects of it yeah you I got what you were saying. Good. (laughs) Yes.
0: If I was steering the
2: ship, I would have gone a different direction. Yeah,
0: and you and I uh, have very different identities, right? So that would, I think that would have (laughs) a lot to do with you steering the ship. So I'm curious, how would you have steered the ship?
2: Oh, for me, I would have just gone straight into the text. Like, here is how Toni Morrison tells a story. Uh, I would have brought up the... I probably would have done a comparative biblical text when Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches, with that passage about the tree growing out back. And how, yeah, and oh. (laughs) Yeah, you should do this series, (laughs) Drill. I might. (laughs) If I could get students interested in books, I would love to. Yeah
0: when did you first read beloved
2: in high school foolishly
0: because it was like a personal choice
2: yeah so in ap english we had to do bas book analyses it's funny one of them came up in my facebook memories a few weeks ago um and so you had a list of books to pick from and i i to try to pick all of the ones I thought were going to get me in trouble. <laughs> so I did the color purple, mm-hmm. um, beloved. Um, I managed to get special permission to do *Brokeback Mountain*. Wow, the short story on which the movie was based, which it was really hard to do a book analysis of a book that's only thirty-three to thirty-five pages. Ah, novela, mm-hmm. but I pulled it off. Um, I did *Lolita*. Oh, which was a horrific book. Yeah. Uh, awful. But I picked all the books that I knew no one else was reading because I figured my grade would be higher because I'm not doing what everyone else is doing. <laughs> and it worked. Good. So, My uh, school strategy. <laughs> so yeah, I think that was Saw junior year I read Beloved. So it must have been like, what, 15, 16?
0: Yeah. When, so... You said, uh, did you say mistakenly or you had some sort of hesitation about reading it when you were in high school? Oh,
2: yeah, because that like way. at 15, you don't have like the life experience to really fully receive what Tony Morrison is saying. And really at 50, you still aren't there either. Yeah. But like you have a better chance. And so I've had to reread it, but it was still like the narrative, the word choice, the imagery. It's such a well put together book,
0: and it takes a little bit to, at least for me, to get into her style of writing to kind of anticipate to really let even the content saturate because it's so right. uh, dense and beautiful. But the form takes a little bit of adjustment
2: for me. It's reading a theology textbook in seminary,
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: it gets good, but you got to yeah. work your way into it.
0: Yeah, you kind of, it's it's almost like when I listen to like Netflix shows where someone has like heavily accented English, and it just it just takes me a little bit to get the patterns and like to know where we're going before I can fully kind of grasp. So Toni Morrison's work, I've had to come back to again and again and again, because you just, I, I get more, more and more out of it each time. It just hits me in a different place for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's not like she doesn't even warn you like, oh, this is an allegory or this is a flashback. Oh, you're 500 years in the past. (laughs) Surprise. The timeline stuff is a little trippy. (laughs) So
0: you mentioned that it's really hard (laughs) at 15 to grapple with this. And the whole, um, one of the reasons I chose her work Beloved was particularly because of the Beloved Bill that Youngkin brought forward. Like that was the book that was kind of highlighted. Um, so despite it being kind of a uh, heavy content at 15, what do you think the value is of having it be accessible?
2: I wasn't worried about the content. Yeah. Uh, so much as I was worried about how well I was going to hold it. Normally, like when I read a book, I can read it and be done and it sits in my mind forever. And for me, like at 15, I had to keep coming back to Beloved. So it's a book I probably should have started later, but the content itself, like there's nothing that it covers or deals with that high schoolers today don't in some way experience violence, um, romantic relationships, teen pregnancy. Like these are things that happen in high schools. And so I think seeing someone talk about this in a different way is only something that could benefit a student from engaging with it. Um, Now, it's a little bit more difficult than like watching Teen Mom, but I would say reading Beloved is probably better for the mind than Teen Mom was for our minds uh, at the time it came out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a pretty agreeable statement. (laughs) Nothing against Teen Mom, just, you know, uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning book is
2: probably. (laughs) Right, right.
0: (laughs) What do you make of Jesus' consistent use of fiction, and particularly fiction um, that is often violent in nature, and how he teaches us lessons through it? How do you deal with that as a pastor?
2: Oh, I think it's brilliant. I do it all the time in my regular everyday life. I'm like, oh, what a brilliant strategy Jesus has to use these (laughs) fake stories because it puts a little bit of distance between the listener and what you're telling them to do. Because at the end of the day, Jesus was correcting people's behavior, but he wasn't outright saying, you're stupid, do this instead. He says, a wise man built his house upon the rock, but the foolish man built it on the sand. And when the storms came and the wind began to blow, the house of the wise man stood, but the house of the foolish man fell apart. Um, he could have just quoted himself, uh, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption, so to the spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. But a good story about building a house and the winds and storms of life, like that makes sense to a variety of people. Um, Not everyone sews, but everyone knows what a house is. Everyone knows what rocks are. And most people have experienced sand. And so they would know building something on sand is a little bit different than on rock. Um, I think that Jesus's storytelling is really great in that we can get what we need but not so definite that you can use it to bludgeon someone else um it's when we get to the definite that paul and the other disciples start writing that we really seem to get into trouble
0: yeah i think sometimes too folks forget that parable is fiction um, and like that, it's interesting because we we've kind of put parables in their own category as Christians as if they are something different. But the reality is, as far as we know, they came from Jesus' brain. and they were a common. It wasn't just Jesus who was using parables. like it was a common right. way to explain lessons. it was it was a cultural norm to use story to teach. right. So, yeah, it's it's interesting that today, um, you know, the loudest voices trying to ban books, are Christians, you know, like that's those are the loudest voices of people who would identify right. their religious um, mm. affiliation, trying to ban books to keep our kids safe. When like uh-huh. Jesus was constantly using uh, hyperbole to the nth degree, to the point where we don't even get it. I mean, it's wild.
2: Casting eyes into fire, millstones around necks, uh huh, and then actual violence in the temple.
0: <laughs> yeah yes absolutely and jesus was kind of i find that a
2: lot of american christians oh he's hilarious like (laughs) i don't know how people don't see how funny jesus is um anyway cracking jokes the sass the snark like
0: (laughs) so something folks might not know about you is you've spent some considerable time in the state of texas
2: a lot. Yes. A
0: lot. Um, and, uh, you know, Texas is kind of, um, one of the, one of the spaces under siege from a lot of these, uh, book bans mm-hmm. and a general kind of censorship. So I'm curious what, um, what did that look like being, being a clergy person, being a Christian, just all, you know, what did that look like there for you trying to figure out how to how to be who you are in the midst of an environment um, where even the government, you know, is the censoring factor.
2: Well, it's unusual because I had left before these book bans started. I've been in the Midwest since 2020, and sure. these book bans really didn't start until the pandemic. Like growing up in Texas. Like I just said, the books that I got to read in high school like, and even at Baylor University, the world's largest Baptist university, like our professors there would openly say like, oh, some Christians believe that the earth is only 4000 years old. And those Christians are wrong. And, and then we would just talk about science or like in Bible class, they'd say this isn't real. Like this is an allegory. Um, so like when I got to seminary and people were like freaking out that there were two creation narratives, I'm like, yeah, we learned this in freshman year at Baylor. Um, yeah. And so like this new move towards over censorship is really a new thing for Texas. Texas is like supposed to be this libertarian live and let live state and now it is moving more and more to like a nanny state um as a clergy person like i feel like the bible is at risk there's so much in there that is dangerous uh that i would say exposing children to is dangerous <laughs> uh all sorts of sexual content and yeah yeah all sorts of violence and
0: yeah bestiality I mean there's a lot of things in there
2: (laughs) yes a lot that's really all of the things that gay people get accused of is actually in the Bible but um (laughs) uh yeah I don't know it's a really weird place to be because like I didn't go to high school that long ago like (laughs) it wasn't old history um less than 20 years ago um and it's really interesting to see how fast the United States is pivoting politically. Um, interesting and terrifying.
0: Yeah, it, it is. And it's, um, it's concerning for folks of faith. And I, I get to say this a lot, that as church, we actually are really called to be political, perhaps not partisan, but certainly very political. And we have something to say about the way that we live together mm-hmm. and this movement of censorship is just so uh, baffling again, because, you know, like I mentioned yesterday, you can't actually ban a book in America in 2023. Maybe, uh, who knows what the future will hold? Like right now you just take it out of curriculum and it's not like kids can't get them, you know, right. so like, what, what is the deal? Like, and I think we know what the deal is, <laughs> but it feels thinly veiled and it's hard to even have conversations with folks Mm-hmm. common ground of saying like hey yeah we we all care about our kids and where do we where do we move forward right we're at this point we all care about our kids no one loves their kids any less mm-hmm, the way mm-hmm. we choose to do that looks particularly different and offering ways forward for that like that's a sticking point point. and I think about that a lot yeah what do we do in that space and how do we how do we cultivate any sort of movement away because I'm not sure that constantly just being combative about it is the only strategy. I think it's one. That's a good one. Right. But I think there, are, there needs to be space for some other other strategies in there to have meaningful conversation about, hey, mm-hmm. can you can you not do this? Like I why do you get to tell my kid what they can't read? Or any other kid for that matter.
2: For the entire state in some of these cases. Like one parent doesn't like beloved in Longview, Texas, and now The entire state just doesn't get to read a book that has won a pulitzer prize (laughs) like it's yeah (laughs) one of the best books of all time um but yeah
0: it's been really interesting um so my my um undergrad and then i spent one one year teaching high school history before (laughs) directing a wesley foundation um but i'm still in a lot of like teacher facebook groups and hearing firsthand accounts from, from teachers in Florida who are teaching U.S. history who can't even mention slavery and they're teaching about the Civil War.
2: Yeah, you know, like, how I do, get, you do like that?
0: What do we, it's it's a hard place to be in um, and trying to find s- space for those that we're so done, it's hard to even have conversations with people in some of those spaces, at least for me. Like, how do we, where do we even find a starting place of what that looks like? Right. I'm not sure if you've been able to engage um, and some of that work or some of that conversational work. Um, but I'm curious what, yeah, what you think about that? How do, how do we start conversations with folks that we kind of generally miss each other when we're trying to talk past one another?
2: Well, I find that most, I guess, Republican voters don't agree with these policies. Mm -hmm. Um, When I simply just talk to them about it, they're like, yeah, the government shouldn't be telling us what our kids can read. That's our job as parents. Like most conservatives see that this is not a conservative value. And so it's how do we get the people in power to realize that what they're doing is unpopular with their own base? It's like, obviously, if you sneeze loud enough somebody's gonna clap and somebody's gonna be mad about it but (laughs) so them doing this obviously some people are really excited and on board with it um but the numbers aren't in their favor um the majority don't like it because they can see if we can do this from a conservative perspective what's to stop people on the left from doing that to us and So much of our political system is basically based on like, I don't want someone else to do it to me, so I'm not going to do it, even though I want to. Um, (laughs) And that is the mutually held bond that ties us all together. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) A horrible version of the golden rule is how we (laughs) operate. What is it? The fear of mutually assured destruction? Like, that's the reason why no one launches nukes? yet um like well we don't want to want that stuff coming back on us yeah um for me it's really just like asking people would you want someone to do this with your family um uh, like book bans I, I I just I can't ever remember a time in history when the person banning the books was on the right side
1: yeah
2: um but Even more personally, like the debate about children accessing trans health care. For me, I just, I have to ask, would you like it if the state or the federal government came into your house and started telling you how to raise your child? And then all of a sudden the conversation changes. Once you make it personal, once you tell a story... And build that narrative in someone's mind and they're able to put on the shoes or the hair or whatever of somebody else, then they can really see how their views affect other people. I find a lot of our theology, a lot of our politics just floats in the mind and people don't think about the real life aspects of it. So you have to bring up the story and put them in the mindset of, oh, if we do this, this will happen. If this happens, it would affect me and my family this way. And then people say, oh, well, maybe I should rethink this or oh, no, 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 no. I never thought of it that way before. Like the pivot has to happen because it's personal.
0: Well, and it's interesting that you mention it's story. Story is the mechanism, right? That's the whole, the crux of, of banning books is, is taking story away, right? Taking those voices and and stories away from people. So it makes, you know, like that kind of goes hand in hand with what the ultimate agenda is from folks who are perhaps banning books is the removal of these stories that help us uh, understand and, and get past our, those heady places where we're, we're thinking, theoretically but not not viscerally and where our lives are like how we actually live
2: Mm -hmm.
0: it takes empathy out of it
2: right and that's absolutely the goal like yeah (laughs) there's too many examples but (laughs) but like if we just look at who's getting banned like no one is blocking the kite runner or um what's that annoying book they always make us Time, or like on the road by Jack Kerouac oh sure oh, all those drugs and alcohol A lot of drugs <laughs> uh-uh. but how come that's not being banned um
0: yeah I mean have, did you have to read Oedipus Rex? like I was like shocked like how can anyone say beloved compared to Oedipus like in terms of
2: sexually graphic content oh Oedipus Re- no I didn't have to read it
0: uh, but, like my husband did in high school and I'm like how how are we even and that's like it's, I understand the value of that, but it's just fascinating. Like an old, you know, an old white guy wrote this and it's a classic. So we're going to keep this right. naming right. Bill after it.
2: But They love using that word classic for everything. I'm like classic to whom? Yeah, and for what purpose? <laughs> for what and purpose? why? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I'm sure Steinbeck had something bad going on in one of his books or whatever, but like it's art and yeah. narrative and sometimes on a farm somebody gets into an accident with the hoeing machines like like that just happens like
0: yeah i mean east of eden is is brutal right so it's it's fascinating uh, the directions and how people say it's not about identity it's absolutely about the identity of the author and the narrative they're trying to communicate like
2: half of his books are literally just about how great southern california is i'm like he's clearly <laughs> selling a dream here is pushing the narrative like (laughs) everyone moved to southern california get on a farm
0: (laughs) well Jarrell, um i am so excited because you serve at a place that is very near and dear to my heart i was the um executive director there frankly only for like uh a year and a half before the pandemic (laughs) so i count the pandemic years, they were really really rough Um, But Wesley of Kalamazoo is so dear to me. Wesley's, I think, are incredible organizations and why so many people I know are in the church or in ministry. And you're kind of in a big build back space, like almost every campus ministry I know, in a space of building back. What does that look like for you? What do you got going on? What do you wish people knew about what you're doing over at Wesley?
2: I wish people knew they could come in the door. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like uh, when a student walks in, my immediate thought is either they're here to rent the space or they thought the free food was here and it's not. Um, And I'm trying to to pivot my mindset to to, to prepare for the students that are coming in. To experience ministry <laughs> yeah um but until that day comes it looks like me leaving the office and going out where the students are yeah um like I just go to the student center like every other day um uh see what's going on try and go to events that other groups are doing um partner with people who have been here longer um and try to predict and then prepare to meet needs before they arise so we're doing speaking of controversial political opinions as covid hospitalizations are on the rise i am planning a covid booster vaccine clinic here All right. and thank you to you tithing united methodists because part of your apportionments have helped to pay for it um i was under the impression that you offer space and they show up and give shots that is no longer the case now you have to pay money so oh. had to look around and get some money from to to pay for these shots uh so that students can you know hopefully remain out of the hospital
1: yeah and
2: um but also looking to partner I was under the impression that there was a food pantry at this Wesley Foundation before, and uh, apparently there was not. There was was,
0: just during COVID.
2: Right. Yeah. Lisa was like, well, if you want to do it full time, Jarrell, you have to launch it. (laughs) It's like, thanks, Lisa.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We had one just during COVID.
2: (laughs) Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, like, looking at ways that we can meet physical needs. because that's also what we're called to do, and the way I see it is, all these things will be added unto us if we <laughs> seek first to feed the body. The soul will follow. All
0: right. Well, how can uh, how can local cho- church how can local church folks or just community members um, help you out? Um, give there's
2: money. There's so many ways. First, yes. Yeah. WesleyKZoo.org slash donate. Please send anything you can. And that being said, your time is also really important. I would love local churches to send somebody to cook meals. Um, The way that we have it set up right now, there is one free meal for students a week. um, And I believe... K first wants to start doing one once a month on a Sunday night. Okay. And so that's two nights and that's great. But I'm also like, I wonder how many more days we can fill this out, how many more students needs we can meet. Because um, I also know like the school does have a food pantry, but it's yeah. only open like one day a week. And I'm like, well, what happens if a student has class or is working on that one day? Um, So trying to find ways to meet needs. And I'm sure there are plenty of retired people in the Southwest District over here that have gifts to share and things that they can bring. Um, You can also become a board member. If you know how to fundraise or manage money wisely, please come guide us.
0: <laughs> well, you know, and I think sometimes people don't know, and this could have changed even in the time I've been there to when you've been there, but I had students, I didn't have any student who didn't have a job. Most of my students had two or three jobs. Right. Oftentimes they would be working 35 to 40 hours. They'd be getting paid minimum wage
2: mm-hmm. and they
0: would bring home. That means about 18 grand. And that is not even half of what you know their college costs in terms of room and board and tuition. And I think sometimes right. people just don't even have that awareness uh, because it was very different when you know it was different when I went to school. It was different certainly when my folks went to school. So I think people don't fully have a grasp on the actual state of need students have and how it's hard to, it's hard to, like you said, it's hard to even get to the point where you can have conversations about what's going on with their soul when they're like, I'm I'm coming from class. I've got to shove a Pop-Tart in my face. And, you know, if I have money for that from a vending machine, and then I got to get to work.
2: Right. Yeah. And I really... The amount of increase in cost for college, even in just the last five years, is huge.
0: It's astronomical.
2: It's so bad. And then when you add the massive amount of rent increases, like, Mm -hmm. it's like they saw that we got a little bit of a discount in the pandemic. (laughs) And they're like, we need to make all of that money back and then some. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, even students here at the Wilk, the Wesley Intentional Living Community, um, I know at least half of them have two jobs. Um, And so like I saw one of them in the parking lot. He pulled in and goes, hi, Jarrell, I'm just going in to change. I'm headed to my next job. And sure enough, two minutes later, before I could make it out of the car into the office, he was in a new uniform walking towards campus to work another job. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, when do you even have time to catch your breath or for these international students to call home and schedule time to see your family? Uh, like it, it it's damaging to the soul mm-hmm. and the spirit when So much of your time is just revolved around trying to make enough money to feed herself.
0: Yes, absolutely. Right. I I wish more people knew that story, um, because you know, by and large, uh, these are kids from you know lower middle class middle class families that have not had to experience this before. Like many, (laughs) many students, like, hey, I didn't. My mom and dad worked, and like we had they made food for us, but it got done quickly. And, and like, I don't know how to cook. (laughs) So like, it's even on top of like learning how to be an adult and do adult things, they're taking a full course load and they're working almost full-time if not full-time and it's, it's
2: bananas um, to just. Full-time without any of the benefits.
0: Yes. Full-time at minimum wage, without insurance, without any of that.
2: No PTO. No, yeah. None of that. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And so you have your work, uh, cut out for you. So I'm, um, you know, Chapel Hill is a covenant church, which means that we're, we're consistently finding ways to support Wesley financially, but also in other means. And, um, yeah, I would encourage our congregation or folks listening to think about a way, um, we could be really partnering and, in uh, meeting the needs that Jarrell has stated for us. So we can consider, um, how to actually live into our Methodist connectionalism in meaningful
2: ways. Oh, also, this is an idea I had today. Oh, I want to do like a pop up thrift store at the Wesley. Yeah. And just have like a bunch of folks who don't need business suits or like business casual things to bring them to the Wesley so that students that are about to go into interviews have something to wear.
0: Yeah.
2: So, if you're a retired person listening and you have a bunch of suits or sports coats or ties that you're done with, consider bringing them to the Wesley, and I will find a place to put them.
0: <laughs> yeah, or or even I could maybe store them. You could give them to me, and I could store them until you need them because I know how it is with people dropping things off at Wesley. <laughs>
2: Girl, the community room is not a storage room. And yeah. yet, and yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes. so if you have gently used business, a casual attire from Chapel Hill, you can even bring it to me. And at the appointed hour,
2: I will present it <laughs> Right, at the appointed hour in the right time.
0: Well, Terrell, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. And uh, I'm excited to continue supporting your really important ministry at Wesley. And uh, yeah, as some of you know, I bake fancy cookies. Um, and one of the things I do is I, I, you know, in, this is air quotes, you can't see them, but I charge for them. Um, but I just have people donate their money to Wesley. So there are even small things um, that all of us can do to be thoughtful about supporting meaningful ministries. Um, yeah, so consider ways to support Wesley. And Jarell, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me and for this really fun sermon series.
0: Woohoo!